Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Do you know what that certified organic label on your food really means? Learn all about that label and why organic is worth it at stonyfield.com. We're proud to be making organic yogurt and honored to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, rethinking storms, climate, and risk in the wake of Sandy, the deadly superstorm that lashed half the country and devastated much of the New Jersey coast and lower Manhattan. The way I think about it overall is that the environment in which these storms are operating has changed. That's the new normal, and the odds are that these storms are more intense and maybe a little bigger. And we will have to adapt with barricades, seawalls, gates, or oysters? Unlike uh, a stopper or some sort of floodgate that we'd have to build, oyster reefs build themselves. We get them going. They will maintain themselves and build themselves higher and higher until they're, you know, really at the height that they should be to ease the storm surge. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Gradually, in the wake of the hurricane that grew into a monster superstorm, people are shoveling out, cleaning up, and counting the cost. In all, more than 100 died. Thousands lost their homes. Some businesses are wrecked and may never recover. Millions suffered without power, and many still do. A storm so deadly, powerful, and huge seems like an unprecedented event, But then we've seen Katrina, and Andrew, and Irene, and Ike. Dr. Kevin Trenberth is a climate analyst and senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder and joins us now. Welcome to the show. Yes, good day, Steve. In the scheme of things, uh, how unusual was Hurricane Sandy? Well, Hurricane Sandy became very unusual because it was no longer a hurricane when it made landfall, but a hybrid storm where it had merged with another storm that actually dropped snow here in Colorado late last week. And it became this uh, extratropical hybrid storm that had mixed characteristics and more than double the size of a normal hurricane. There were hurricane-force winds over a very large area, much more extensive than it would have been if it had just been a hurricane. Does the experience of Sandy mean that science needs to redefine what a hurricane is? Well, this, these hybrid storms uh, certainly occur. The elements were sort of aligned here to make this uh, a major storm, and I think most of them were very much related to weather. Uh, You know, there probably is a a small human influence on this that's important, but uh, most of what went on perhaps is more of a crapshoot aspect to it. Talk to me about this near-record low barometric pressure that was part of Sandy. What does it mean and why was it so low? Well, that certainly relates to the size of the storm. It's just a huge storm. It does relate to this uh, hybrid character of the storm. The low pressure means that there's less weight on the ocean, and so the ocean uh, wells up a bit more there. Uh, There's uh, the uh, astronomical factors relating to the full moon and uh, also sea level being a little higher than it used to be because of climate change. And so all of these factors came together to produce record-breaking storm surges, especially in the southern part of Manhattan. So at the end of the day in your analysis, how much did climate change have to do with Hurricane Sandy? 
Well, firstly, on the sea level side, you know, sea level is going up at just over an inch every decade, a, a little over a foot per century is the current rate. And so it's uh, only a few inches, perhaps you can think of it that way, but it also means that sea level is higher than it has ever been. And so that's one factor that adds to some of the coastal damage in particular. The other factors are that the uh, ocean is warmer. It's warmer by about uh, one degree Fahrenheit relative to before the 1970s. That provides more fuel for the storm. It means the air above the storm is uh, a little warmer and also moister. And so this invigorates the storm. So the number I usually quote is uh, about a 5 to 10% increase in precipitation. And so this relates even to storms like uh, Hurricane Irene last year or even Isaac uh, this year where there was extensive uh, flooding in many areas in association with these tropical storms. You've been studying these for a long time, but science is always full of surprises. What were your surprises uh, that you encountered with the superstorm, Sandy? Uh, well, you know, th this was certainly being predicted to be a very strong superstorm. But even so, the damage was pretty appalling for me to see. And the fact that a number of the subways in the southern Manhattan actually did fill with water is very dismaying. In many respects, I'm not surprised. But then when you do see what's actually happening, it's always a bit shocking. So Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy or Hybrid Sandy, whatever we want to call it, this is our new normal. And in our warming world, uh, what can we expect for the future hurricane seasons? Well, this is right. It is a new normal. You know, the way I think about it overall is that the environment in which these storms are operating has changed. That's the new normal. And the odds are that these storms are uh, more intense and maybe a little bigger. But the possibility of uh, heavier rains and, and flooding, that risk exists. But at the same time, these storms churn up the ocean. They, they take energy out of the ocean, uh, as we mentioned. That's the evaporation of moisture, so there's evaporative cooling of the ocean. And as a result, these storms leave a cold wake behind them. And that's one of the reasons why hurricanes don't track along the same path. They're always choosing a new path across the ocean. And so one of the effects is that the environment behind a storm is less favorable for a storm. And so we do expect that although there are bigger, more intense storms, that there may be fewer storms as a whole. So one really big storm can take the place of what might have been, say, four or five smaller storms in the past. Now, since the world as a whole isn't making uh, major efforts really to address the human part of global climate change, how then should people prepare for the way our climate is shifting? Well, firstly, yes, uh, we ought to be working to slow down these effects. And so that relates to the burning of fossil fuels, in particular, the increases in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we really ought to be trying to reduce those emissions. So the second part of this, then, is to recognize this is happening and to plan for it. Planning for these kind of things is something we're also not doing adequately at the current time. And, of course, if you don't plan the result is that you suffer the consequences. And that's been the main strategy that we've had so far. We just take it as it comes and suffer the consequences. Kevin Trenberth is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. Thank you so much, sir. You're most welcome. It'll be months before the costs of Superstorm Sandy are tallied, but estimates currently range to 50 or $60 billion or even more. 
Insurance companies will pick up the tab for part of that, and they're paying attention when scientists say climate change will increase the severity of storms. Steve Dishart used to manage communications for Zurich-based Swiss Re, a company that's part of the large reinsurance industry. Insurance companies manage their risks by buying policies against catastrophic loss from reinsurers. We reached Dishart at his home in Westchester County, just north of New York City, where, after the storm, he's got no electricity or heat. Well, I'm missing heat, but fortunately I've got a wood-burning stove, so I'm sitting in front of a wood burner talking to you on my cell phone. This is the second time in exactly 12 months I've had to do the same thing. You know, we had the storm last year with the heavy snow that brought the trees down, that brought the power down, and now a year later we're dealing with it again. Now, Steve, it's too early, of course, to really know, but how big a deal is this superstorm, Sandy? The two largest losses uh, in terms of weather have been Hurricane Andrew and Hurricane Katrina. I think this is going to be somewhere in between. Uh, it's hard to tell right now what the loss will be, but you have to think about all the losses related to flooding, in particular with homes uh, all up and down the East Coast. There's also business loss interruption, which, of course, will be significant because we have uh, one of the largest commercial regions in the country. So we're talking a very large impact and one of the most significant in our country's history. But in the long run, uh, I think the more important impact is on our thought process with regard to climate change. What's the consensus in the insurance industry about climate change? I don't want to speak for the entire industry, but I think there is a view within the reinsurance industry that climate change will continue to have an impact and continue to increase. And it's not just about global warming. The issue is volatility and severity with regards to the climate, and that is what's changing, and that's what we need to prepare for. Volatility, you mean that things just change rapidly? I mean that we have more events more often. They're more severe. The floods are increased and the droughts are increased as well. This is a matter of climate change. It is happening and it is a reality. The fact that some people don't want to buy into human contribution to climate change, to me, is unfortunate but irrelevant. Climate is changing. There is tremendous agreement among scientists that it is changing. And we're beyond the point now where we can adjust and try to dampen the impact. In fact, uh, sadly, we need to face the concept of adaptation. Does this increase in, in the frequency and severity of these storms affect the ability of, of your industry to write policies? Uh, it certainly affects the pricing of policies. When you look at a situation and people want to get insurance, you have to say, well, what does that cost? You know, should we be subsidizing through the government or through other means people who uh, desire to live out on an island or out somewhere that's more vulnerable, uh, or should they be paying a higher rate or not be insured and be able to self-insure? So uh, Munich Re recently put out a report uh, just two weeks before this storm that was entitled Severe Weather in North America, writing, and let me quote them here, nowhere in the world is the rising number of natural catastrophes more evident than in North America. The study shows a nearly quintupled number of weather-related loss events in North America for the past three decades compared to an increased factor of four in Asia and two in Europe. Why do you think we're seeing more climate-related natural catastrophes in North America than other parts of the world? 
Well, keep in mind, particularly when it comes to hurricane, that one of the generators of hurricane is warm water. And we look at the Gulf of Mexico, we look at the hurricane generator, the warm water there. Uh, we also have extreme penetration of insurance in North America, which also increases the loss rates. If you took a map of North America and you looked at migration over the last 30 to 40 years, and then you took a map and looked at the most severe events, it appears that North Americans like to move where disasters happen. So we have had all these events in Florida, along the Gulf, in California, and we have the most dense population that we can uh, moving to those areas. The unfortunate thing is, Steve, that we don't see the tremendous losses when we look at third world countries because, tragically, poorest areas in Nicaragua, in Dominican Republic, in Haiti, uh, don't have the housing, don't have the protection that we have here. So they don't have the insurance that we have in the United States and other parts of North America. Yeah, there's a saying that uh, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Uh, what do you think the crisis that's been brought on by Superstorm Sandy, what's the benefit that could come out of this? Well, the benefit is that I've heard Mayor Bloomberg in New York City, I've heard Governor Cuomo talk about climate change in an atmosphere where people are listening. Perhaps there is a learning moment for us here to realize that climate change is happening that we cannot protect everybody from every potential risk, and that we need to uh, prepare for what may happen in the future. Steve Dishart is uh, a former managing director of communications for Zurich-based Swiss Re, and now teaches at Baruch College in New York. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure, Steve. Good to be with you. Just ahead, when the ocean turns angry, should we enlist a bivalve to help protect New York City? Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Sandy the Superstorm has dominated the news, but there is an election on, and the disaster helped engineer some unusual political fallout. New Jersey's Republican governor, Chris Christie, heaped praise on President Obama for his speedy responsiveness to the catastrophe. And Michael Bloomberg made a last-minute endorsement of Obama for re-election. The independent New York mayor cited climate change as he praised the Democratic president's actions to cut emissions and lamented Republican Mitt Romney's opposition to capping global warming gases. One sees climate change as an urgent problem that threatens our planet. One does not, Bloomberg wrote in an opinion piece. I want our president to place scientific evidence and risk management above electoral politics. Risk management was a key part of a documentary, Degrees of Concern, Climate Change and New York City's Future, that we broadcast back in 2003. It examined the vulnerability of the Big Apple to flooding from a major ocean storm such as Sandy. We visited Ground Zero, where the twin towers of the World Trade Center once stood, with Klaus Jacob, a senior research scientist at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, who described how Lower Manhattan could be inundated in a storm surge. Here's part of that story from reporter John Rudolph. Professor Klaus Jacob looks out over the World Trade Center site and sees a potential disaster in the making. It's not the threat of more terrorism. Jacob worries that in coming decades, whatever is built on the site will be vulnerable to the combination of rising seas and more intense storms aggravated by climate change. The frequency of uh, such flooding events could increase on an average three times, but in the worst case as much as ten times. 
So what is right now a 50-year storm, uh, which is roughly an eight-foot coastal storm surge here at this place uh, where we stand, it could happen instead of every 50 years, it could happen every five years. And that's not good for a city that claims to be the world financial capital to see its financial infrastructure flooded every five years and business interrupted and all the things that go with it. Now, as you said, there's a range of possibilities. There's the best case scenario, there's the worst case scenario. Does it really matter in terms of which of these scenarios you choose uh, in terms of the increased vulnerability of ground zero, of the subway entrances downtown, of the tunnel entrances downtown and so forth? We have already a storm surge problem. The Holland Tunnel uh, uh, is always on the verge of flooding uh, during Nor'easters, and the past tunnel already has flooded. So we know what the current risk is. What's so bad is that it will become more frequent. And so it's actually more cost beneficial to do it now. Because the longer we wait, uh, the less benefit we get because we may incur some uh, losses before we do the measure. So why not do them now when we are all building this infrastructure anyhow? What kinds of specific measures uh, are you suggesting should be taken now to uh, protect this infrastructure from the kinds of storm surges that you've been talking about? Well, one good thing is that we already have created again some buffer zones on the waterfront uh, uh, towards the Hudson. Much of what was formerly industrial or uh, harbor facilities have been turned into parkland. So that's great. That's a good measure. That's a step in the right direction. Uh, what has to be done for protecting both the infrastructure but also buildings that are going up here is we simply have to be aware that all critical entrances have to be at a certain level that uh, exceeds the projected flooding levels. And we can discuss the details how to achieve it and engineers will do a, probably a very good job in doing this. But it has to be brought in into the planning. When you look at the situation out in Jamaica Bay and then you stand here in front of Ground Zero, what's the connection between the disappearing marshes in Jamaica Bay and the threat that Ground Zero and the Holland and Midtown tunnels face? Well, I wish we would lose a piece of uh, Manhattan just like we do out in Jamaica Bay every year and then we would see it better. Right? So far we have engineered over it cosmetically, but we really haven't addressed the fundamental issues. Professor Klaus Jacob of Columbia University with reporter John Rudolph at Ground Zero in 2003. Well, Professor Jacob would presumably be justified in looking at the extraordinary destruction of Superstorm Sandy and saying, I told you so. So we called him up and reached him on his cell phone. Hello? Klaus Jacob. Hi, Klaus Jacob. Steve Kerwood here at Living on Earth. How are you, sir? Fine. You're on your cell phone because you've lost power? That's right. I am a victim like many, many others here in the New York and New York area. How have you and your family fared in this storm? Well, we 
got hit. We had two feet of water in the house and two cars flooded out. And uh, no power, no gas, no electricity, no communication except the cell phone. And what neighborhood are you in? We are in a small village called Piermont, New York, which is on the Hudson, about uh, five miles south of the Tappan Zee Bridge. And what's the damage like in your neighborhood? A lot of boats got washed into the backyards of people. There's a marina. Many of the waterfront gardens were heavily damaged from the wave action. And the worst, uh, I would say, about a third of the village was inundated with two feet or more of water, some up to five feet. Now, back in 2003, you said that Manhattan would need to get hit by serious flooding before officials would start to think more seriously about the risks of climate change, particularly the storm surges. So, you think Sandy's enough of a wake-up call? Well, last year's Irene should have been the wake-up call, and then we should have gotten into action. So, this is the second wake-up call. How many wake-up calls do we need? Are you surprised by any of what you've uh, seen about this? I mean, you saw this coming, but did you think it would be this bad for the city? Well, I mean, we had a scenario in which we went through the exercise what a 100-year storm would do, and Sandy turned out to be pretty much that scenario that we investigated, and all the consequences seem to have come through. We're looking at the new reality here, Klaus Jacob? Well, yes, I have heard... uh, Governor Cuomo say that there's a new reality, but that reality has been around for about 10 years. What has changed is that we have incurred the losses. Now, back in 2003, you were encouraged about the development of buffer zones along the waterfront. Uh, What else should New York City do now to better prepare itself for these new realities? Well, first, it needs to protect its infrastructure, the subways the sewer water treatment plants and the electric power plants and communication and many other things. Secondly, each owner near or on the waterfront or in a flood zone has to take some responsibility for his or her own uh, safety and investment and businesses need to think about business continuity. So you can't just leave it to the city or the state or the federal government Everybody has their task. If you had the ear of the mayor of New York right now, what would you say? I would say, enough with talk. Let's get to action. First of all, of course, you have to have good engineering plans, which we haven't done yet. We have sort of general ideas how we might go about. But, uh, for instance, there are engineers within the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, that have been thinking about how to approach this issue, but they haven't been allowed by the management and, if you like, by the legislature and the governor because no money is available for really action, and that's what we need. So the engineering's are in the starting holes, but there is no gun for the race to begin. Now, some will say this is a fluke, you know. There's a big flow back in 1821. It'll be 100, 200 years before this happens again. Well, it's amazing that in the political bodies we are still talking whether that is a new reality when you come from a science or technical point or even from a common experience. Sea level rise. We're losing you. I think I'll need to say goodbye. Let you save your battery here. Klaus Jacob, thank you so much for taking this time with us today. You're welcome. Bye. 
Klaus Jacob is a senior research scientist at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. So there are several ideas and suggestions for protecting New York from devastating storm surges in the future, barriers and gates, for example, but writer Paul Greenberg has one of his own, oysters. That's right, Greenberg wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that explained how centuries ago, oysters were a fundamental defense for the city. Paul Greenberg joins us now by Skype, and I gather you're at a friend's house because your home has lost power, is that right? Yeah, we're blacked out, um, as is all of lower Manhattan right now. We live on Broadway right near uh, Ground Zero and Zuccotti Park. So we're now in an area that has power, but below 30th Street, it's all blacked out. So what did it look like on your block this morning when you left? Well, the block itself was okay. I mean, you see debris everywhere, but when you walk down the hill, it, it turns out that Broadway is a ridge line. And when you walk downhill past a certain point, you start to see this water line on buildings. And if you peer into the windows uh, of bars and restaurants, it just looks like there was a huge bar fight with a lot of mud. Um, so you see chairs and tables thrown all over the place. One place, a famous fish market restaurant called the Paris, had literally a stream of beer bottles coming out the door. And yes, people were picking them up and drinking them. <laughs> uh, what's it smell like, Paul? It smells a lot like gasoline or diesel. And in fact, the sidewalks around the seaport area are stippled with that, you know, sort of rainbow hue of gas. That's the sticky, gross, oily smell with a little tinge of, you know, sort of raw sewage along the edge. Oh, my God. So how long is it going to take to clean something like this up? I don't think New York is talking about days or even weeks to get back to normal. No. I mean, you know, I used to work in places like Bosnia and Georgia and other sort of war-torn places, and that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, we'll probably get our subways up somewhat soon. Yeah, maybe we'll get the electricity going. But, you know, the cafe where I normally write, uh, I saw them literally just like, you know, sweeping gallons of water out the door and all these private businesses down there. I, I mean, this is a devastating lifetime event. Boy, that sounds pretty rough. Uh, well, let's get back to your op-ed, Paul. Oysters? Yeah, well, so it turns out once upon a time, New York and, and really a lot of the East Coast uh, was literally covered in oysters. Oysters, what they do is uh, when they are born, they are little free-swimming larvae, and they set upon other oyster shells and then build shells of their own. And you do this enough times, time and time and again, over 7,000 years, which is what the time period we're talking about, you end up with reefs. And so it turns out that New York City was girded by this temperate reef of oysters, just like tropical islands are girded by coral reefs. And what those do is they not only protect the near shore because they stabilize it, a little bit further offshore, the reefs create undulation and um, contour to the harbor and actually break up the wave action before they hit the shore. Ah, so it uh, minimizes erosion. It does. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, for the last 400 years, we've pretty much hounded the oyster out of existence. You know, for the first 300 years, we just ate them mercilessly. And when we were done eating them, instead of tossing the shells back into the water, which would have been good because it would have been home for more oysters, instead, we burned a lot of the shell down for lime, which is used for plaster and other industrial uses. We crushed up the shells and used them for roadbeds um, and literally just teared cubic mile after cubic mile of these things out of the harbor. And it's almost like kind of opening up a bleeding wound for the sea to come rushing back in. What kind of future is there in oysters as a barrier? You know, it's going to have to be a collaboration between humans and oysters if we'd like oysters back in the harbor to help us. Oysters right now 
can't form their own reefs in New York Harbor. The current is too swift. The water quality, while it's better than it was, still you know, it requires some help from us. So what's happened is a consortium of different organizations, including Baykeeper, uh, Hudson River Foundation, a few others, have built these test reefs in the harbor where they actually, the Army Corps of Engineers laid down some rock. And then on top of that, you do what's called spat on shell, which is uh, little baby oysters that have already bonded to a little chunk of shell that is in turn connected to the reef. The idea is if you could get enough of these reefs planted throughout the harbor, they would produce a lot of larvae, um, they would start to produce shell, and you could maybe get the momentum going so that you could start to reclaim some of this reef structure that we've lost. For a storm surge, how many feet of protection do you think an oyster reef would provide? Well, I mean, you know, that's the, the devilish question is, once upon a time, I mean, these reefs were, you know, yards high, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet high. It takes a long time to get to that point, but the thing about an oyster reef is that unlike a stopper or some sort of you know floodgate that we'd have to build, oyster reefs build themselves. We get them going. They will maintain themselves and build themselves higher and higher until they're, you know, really at the height that, that they should be to, to ease the storm surge. And really, you know, if you want to kind of duck into this sort of Gaia hypothesis that the earth protects itself, it's kind of quite true with the oyster because the oyster doesn't like situation where it's exposed to pounding sea. So when it creates reefs it creates calmer water, which in turn allows for more oysters to grow. So in a way, if we could work out a relationship with the oyster where it's helping itself, it's also going to help us. Okay, Paul. So imagine an oyster reef now 10, 20 feet high. How do you get a ship through there? How do you navigate through all those oyster reefs? Well, you're definitely going to have to have shipping channels. And it may be that some sort of solution to helping New York survive is going to be part oysters, part hardware that we're actually going to have to plant in the harbor. There's a very interesting landscape architect named Kate Orff, um, and her studio, Scape Studio, did a really nice exhibit. She has this idea called oyster texture, where you would basically build a, a series of structures, false floors, fuzzy rope, different things that oysters could attach to that would create the reef structure throughout the different parts of the harbor. And if you guide it in such a way, if you envision where you want your shipping channels, then conceivably you could start to build your reefs in such a way that they wouldn't interfere with shipping. So let's just go to the bottom line here, Paul. If we had the level of oysters that were in New York Harbor originally some 300 years ago, would Sandy have had the punch that she had? I think her punch would have been uh, blocked by a left hook um, or, or some sort of blocking maneuver. I'm not a boxer, but um, it would have been softened. And keep in mind when I say an oyster reef being 10, 20 feet high, that's subtitle. So we're not talking about you know, a seawall that would be actually higher than the storm surge. We're talking about something below water that would block the energy of the incoming waves and I think would probably have done quite a bit to soften the blow. Again, I'm not an engineer, I'm a writer, but um, the engineers and the scientists I've talked to like this idea, and I don't think the Army Corps of Engineers would have invested their time and money into this project if they didn't think there was some potential. A left hook, or I think in New York it's Red Hook, isn't it? <laughs> well, Red Hook got the left hook, unfortunately. Paul Greenberg is author of Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Steve. Coming up, recalibrating how we measure risk. Keep listening to Living on Earth.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now for your emails, comments, and complaints. We recently reported on state-level efforts to control carbon emissions through the policy known as RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. RED hopes to use cash that polluters must pay under carbon trading schemes to keep tropical forests standing. We said that California would include RED projects in its emissions reduction program, which begins auctions of carbon allowances this month. Stanley Young of the California Air Resources Board hauled us over the coals, writing that RED is not included in the forestry protocols that can generate offset credits in the Golden State. In fact, in 2010, Governor Schwarzenegger did sign an agreement with states in Mexico and Brazil that committed California to bring RED into the carbon offset system. But Mr. Young is correct to point out California has yet to implement that agreement. Then we had this comment from Charles Ashurst, who hears us on KUSU in Logan, Utah. We've had three presidential debates, a Utah gubernatorial debate in Utah, and numerous other political debates, without a single mention of climate change. Are you people living on Earth or not? If so, let's see this issue get onto the political radar screen. Well, Sandy may have had something to say about that. We always welcome anything you have to say. Email comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Or post them on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Well, whether it's a hurricane or an oil rig explosion, disasters take a huge toll. So it makes sense that evaluating disaster risk is a major industry. But as much as it might help, Risk assessment can also get in the way, especially if it gives a false sense of security. Researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, are working to reinvent risk assessment. From IEEE Spectrum Magazine, National Science Foundation special, Responding to Disasters from Prediction to Recovery, Lauren Summer has our story. She traveled to a fragile part of California where risk is a way of life. I'm driving down a bumpy road on top of a levee near the Sacramento River, about 50 miles east of San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so we are at Sherman Island, which is the, the gateway to the delta from the San Francisco Bay. My guide is Rune Storsent, a researcher at UC Berkeley. He's part of a team developing a new engineering concept called Resilient and Sustainable Infrastructures, or RESIN. I'll pull over here at the right before the bridge right next to Three Miles Slough. This is the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. And if you've heard anything about water battles in California, chances are they were happening here. The Delta is where two major rivers meet and flow out to San Francisco Bay. At least they used to. Today, a lot of that water is pumped elsewhere. A lot of Southern California's water comes uh, through the Delta, through the, the State Water Project. We're driving next to the river on one side and fields of corn on the other. Well, not exactly next to us. The corn on Sherman Island is about 20 feet below the road. 
these channels are all tidally influenced, so you could call that sea level. So these are all below sea level, yeah. Most of the islands in the delta aren't natural. Beginning in the late 1800s, people built levees to hold back the rivers and marshes so they could farm. But the peat soil they exposed has decayed over time, which means these islands are sinking. Something that's, you know, maybe a, a tenth of an inch per year over 100 years is a lot of inches. And Storson says the levees aren't in great condition. You'll see that there are, are cracks and uh, bulges in, in the road. Those are signs that the levee sides are shifting and moving and slumping. Water seeps underneath the levees, so these islands have pumps running night and day to keep the land dry. But seepage can also weaken levees, and you don't have to go far to see the devastating results. So we are now on top of the breach here at uh, Upper Jones Tract in 2004. And then if you look to your right uh, in the cornfields out there, all of that was uh, pretty much wiped out when the breach occurred. The levee failure flooded 12,000 acres, damaging railroad tracks, a power substation, and an aqueduct that runs to the Bay Area. And it wasn't the first time. Jones Tract also flooded in 1980. This breach repair actually leaks significantly. The Delta is home to a lot of major infrastructure. Gas lines, transmission lines, railroad, highways, and it all depends on the levees. These levees also feed fresh water to pumps that carry it to Southern California. So Storson says a major disaster in the Delta would be felt across the state. It's very significant. You know, we're talking billions of dollars. Um, I think if a major earthquake occurred that failed a number of levees, it would be months to years before the state water project were, were up and running again. It's mind-boggling to add up all these interconnected risks. Sinking islands, weak levees, sea level rise, earthquakes. It's difficult for any government agency to address them all. And you have a lot of different organizations who have a stake in the Delta and who have uh, an impact and an influence with really nobody in charge. But all those factors make it a very good place to study risk and to try to change the way it's done. A lot of the risk analyses are, are very difficult, complex, not transparent. And when decision makers look at them, it doesn't really tell them a whole lot. And so we're trying very hard to come up with new ways of communicating not just the results of the risk analysis, but the composition of it as well. It took a long time to get what we call the entangled mess. That's how I described the California Delta. Robert B. heads up the resin project at UC Berkeley. The likelihoods of failure and the consequences of failure can bring to its knees. I think it's now the eighth largest economy in the world, that economy, for a period in excess of five years. B has spent his career studying disasters. In fact, his students have a nickname for him. Dr. Disaster. And I joke with people in many ways, my career has been one disaster after another. B has studied oil rig explosions, hurricanes, refinery fires. But there's one disaster that has shaped his career and his life. Hurricane Betsy's 1965, September the 9th. We just bought a new home. Just had our first son. B and his wife were living in New Orleans when the hurricane hit. And at midnight, we evacuated our home in 100 mile per hour winds. Next day, I go back into the home and I swam back because the water was to our roof. 
we lost everything. A nearby levee had failed. B and his wife sold the property and started over. In 2005, when Hurricane Katrina hit, B went back to New Orleans and visited his former neighborhood. And in fact, the levee that failed in 1965 failed again in 2005 in the same place. So I go back, drove up to the home, and the neighbors were dragging wet, oily mattresses out of the front door, just as I had done 40 years earlier. I broke down and cried. And it wasn't so much I was sad, I was just madder than hell. The more B studied disasters, the more he realized what was missing from his risk assessment. I've been working 10% of the problem. I've been working these traditional engineering things that I love so much and ignoring that 90% called people. B says people, or human and organizational factors as he calls them, have had a major role in all of the disasters he's studied. But it's not easy for engineers to take them into account. I joke and say, well, engineers hate uncertainties because our world is most comfortable when it's deterministic. B and his team are trying to define these uncertainties in the Delta. Normally, risk analysis is expressed in one number, but there's a 75% chance of failure, for example. Instead, the resin team is defining a best-case scenario, worst-case scenario, and what is likely to happen. B says that provides decision-makers with more information to work with, and they're doing their analysis over a longer period. Put yourself out in 2100, and you look back, and you say... I can't use a patch and pray approach because if I do, I'm going to fail or it's going to be horribly expensive. So you start to develop what I call, let's get the hell out of Dodge City approach, which means a strategic withdrawal over a long period of time, evolving an infrastructure system that we can turn over to future generations that is sustainable. B says the big challenge in Medelta is the number of decision makers, each with their own risk analysis. B and his team are working with them to develop a more integrated risk assessment that includes human uncertainties. The acceptance has been varied. It is still amazing to me to watch the pushback from engineering itself. Change is hell. For his part, B is injecting social science into the engineering curriculum at UC Berkeley. He says while it may not be easy to fit human behavior into mathematical equations, it's crucial to more accurately portray risk and to prevent future disasters. If we make big mistakes, that's not a good thing. But if we can reflect deeply on how we made them, then we've got a chance in not doing it again. In Berkeley, California, I'm Lauren Summer. Lauren's story comes to us from IEEE Spectrum Magazine, National Science Foundation special, Responding to Disasters from Prediction to Recovery. Chinese cities are among the most polluted on the planet, but citizens in the coastal city of Ningboa are fighting back. 
Thousands recently took to the streets to protest the expansion of a petrochemical plant they feel is a danger to public health. After three days of demonstrations and clashes between protesters and the police, the government has called the project off, at least for now. Joining us now to discuss the protests from Hong Kong is Ben Carlson, a journalist with The Global Post. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. Uh, Ben, first describe for us the scale of these protests. How many people are we talking about here? It began smaller, as all protests do in China, and by the time the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, rolled around, there were several thousand people in the streets. And things got violent, I gather. Yeah, there were reports of protesters overturning cars, and the police arrested several of the demonstrators, which actually became one of the causes that people were demonstrating against later on. And actually, there was some spillover into this week. There were several hundred people out on Monday, and uh, that's the last we've heard of the protest, but uh, there may still be some activity. What has got these people so fired up? Well, the city of Ningbo is prosperous and ancient. It has one of the oldest histories in China. And all that's to say they've been trying to develop major industries in the city, and that's led to great GDP growth, but people have actually noticed that their health is getting worse and worse. And so the announcement of this plant and the plans that they were trying to push through caused a lot of people to get very upset. What's the substance they're concerned about for their health? Paraxylene is the specific chemical that many of them were worried about, and it's actually a chemical that's caused protests in other parts of China before. And there's definitely something to be worried about here. It causes central nervous system damage, liver damage, and it has proven cognitive effects. So what does this mean, that the protesters, uh, they've won, or the government just trying to slow their momentum? The protesters definitely won. On October 28th, the local government announced that they were no longer following through with plans to make this expansion. The problem is nobody's sure whether or not it's actually going to be carried out. About a year ago, there was a similar protest over the exact same chemical, and the government promised to stop production, but it's still going on now. Now, China historically has been very tough on demonstrations, uh, intolerant. Uh, of course, the killings related to the Tiananmen Square demonstrations in 1989 come to mind. Why such a measured response this time? A strange thing about protests in China is that environmental protests are actually treated more lightly. It's not as political, so there's less sensitivity around it. Although now, since there have been a large number of environmental protests over the last year, and they've been growing year by year, we may see that change. Of course, the Chinese government is preparing for its 18th National Congress. How much do you think that the government's decision to meet these protesters' demands has anything to do with the upcoming transfer of power there in China? It has a lot to do with it. You can only connect the dots from a distance, but it's coming up right after the U.S. election. And all across China, there are reports that the Internet is slowing down, people have to go through much greater security, and there's a lot of pressure on local governments to make the problems disappear. They don't want any bad news when they're going to be transferring the power. Now, how is the country as a whole responding to this protest, and how much do people hear? Uh, Is this a subject of national news? Well, the news is state-run in China, so you're not seeing broadcasts on CCTV about it, but on social media, on the equivalent of Twitter in China, it's huge. There were thousands of people following it, retweeting photos, even though they were trying to crack down on it and censoring certain words related to the protests and were even blocking some people who were trying to upload photos, it became a very big cause célèbre on their equivalent of Twitter. At the end of the day, where is this headed? The success of these demonstrations is inspiring, you think, an environmental movement in China? 
Well, just this year, there have been protests in Sichuan province over a massive copper plant. There was a protest last year in the northern city called Dalian over the same chemical. There have been protests over coal plants. There's definitely going to be more of these. There's going to be no shortage of local governments in China who are going to try to build factories just as big and just as polluting as the one in Ningbo. And I definitely think you're seeing a disconnected local sense of environmental awareness growing. And we could be on the tipping point of a national movement, but that's hard to say where it's going to go. People I've talked to say this is the natural consequence of a larger middle class in China. You have people who have more education, who have property, who have higher expectations of health and, and of their lives and of their children's lives. And so the way China's been growing by building more and more factories, factories that are too dangerous for other countries, is no longer acceptable to a lot of these people. Ben Carlson is a journalist for The Global Post based in Hong Kong. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Well, we recently had a lesson in the sea's power, but as bird notes Michael Stein explains, for some birds, despite the ocean's occasional destruction, the seashore is a protective habitat. Crouching on a rocky shoreline on the Pacific coast, hearing the piping call of the black oyster catcher. A stocky blackbird with bright red eyes and a stout orange-red bill, perfectly suited for jabbing limpets and mussels. Let's listen again. A strong ebb tide's flowing, creating whirlpools and tugging at the kelp. On nearby rocks, harbor seals, looking like huge, taut sausages, have hauled out to rest. If we're lucky today, we'll hear some snorting. The oyster catcher's completely dependent on this marine shoreline for nesting and food, even in winter, when waves hit these rocks with awesome force. Yet what seems like an inhospitable environment to us must offer some advantages to the oyster catcher. For one, wave-splashed mussels, the bird's chief food, open more often making them easier to attack and eat. For another, when the monogamous black oyster catcher nests on ledges just offshore, its eggs and young suffer far less predation by mammals. Now that's something to celebrate. P.S. Contrary to their name, oyster catchers rarely eat oysters. I'm Michael Stein. There are pictures of black oyster catchers over at our website, LOE.org. by the World Media Foundation, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.